This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. House moves to pass a bill to end the COVID-19 health and national emergencies. One day after President Joe Biden announced he intends to end those emergency declarations on May 11th. Just ahead, some House floor debate, and we talk with a Politico White House reporter about what ending the COVID emergencies means from everything from health insurance costs to student loan payments and that Title 42 immigration policy that has turned away migrants on public health emergency grounds. The White House and the House Speaker today exchanging written statements about raising the debt ceiling and discussing federal spending cuts ahead of their face-to-face meeting on Wednesday. Republican Congressman George Santos of New York under scrutiny for lying about his biography and alleged campaign finance violations says he's temporarily leaving his House committee assignments. The House Oversight and Accountability Committee holds an organizational meeting debating subpoena power as that committee is expected to investigate not only the Joe Biden administration, but the Joe Biden family. President Biden plans to meet with the Congressional Black Caucus on Thursday about police reform and the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, following a traffic stop. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken finishing his visit to the Middle East with a stop in the West Bank to see Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and talk about the recent dramatic increase in violent attacks there between Israelis and the Palestinians. And we start with the U.S. House debating a bill titled the Pandemic is Over Act to end the COVID-19 public health emergency, which, along with the national emergency, took effect in January 2020 under former President Trump and has been extended several times since. The bill was published uh, on the House schedule earlier this week when the Biden administration announced the emergencies will be ending on May 11th. Congressman Brett Guthrie, Republican from Kentucky, chair of the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee, explaining on the House floor why the bill is coming up anyway. President Biden and I both agree the COVID-19 pandemic is over. In fact, on the eve of the Pandemic is Over Act going on the House floor, President Biden finally announced he is going to end the COVID-19 emergency declarations. I'm glad that my bill finally forced the Biden administration to act. However, President Biden has taken too long to act on this state, on his statement last September that the pandemic is over, it's, which is why I am moving forward with my bill to end the COVID-19 public health emergency and finally restore checks and balances between Congress and the executive branch. Congressman Brett Guthrie, Republican from Kentucky, on the House floor. Debate lasted about an hour. Here's another Republican, Larry Bouchon of Indiana, supporting the bill, followed by Democrat Lou Correa of California against it. A public health emergency was first declared by Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar in January 2020. It was a different time. We knew little about the novel coronavirus that was overtaking the world. We didn't understand how it worked. We had no way to treat it or reduce the spread. Now, over three years later, the landscape has completely changed. 
Reliable vaccines, tests, and treatments are widely available. Businesses are open, Americans are traveling freely, and folks are ready and willing to get back to work. As I've said from the beginning, it's unlikely we will ever fully rid ourselves of coronavirus, but it can and indeed has become something we have the ability to deal with. Society can and should be returning to normal. Even President Biden acknowledged as much in an interview last September, more than four months ago, when he said the COVID-19 pandemic is over. Yet this administration has continued to extend the length of the public health emergency, using it to retain fear in the American people and to justify continued requests for federal funding. In absence of the administration's willingness to immediately, rightfully end the public health emergency declaration, it is time for Congress to act. I am grateful for my colleague, Mr. Gunthery, for bringing this bill forward, and I urge all my colleagues to support a formal end to the public health emergency declaration. I yield back. The gentleman from Kentucky reserves. The gentleman from New Jersey is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I yield three minutes now to the gentleman from California, Mr. Correa. Recognized. Mr. Speaker, I rise in opposition. COVID-19 has been the worst pandemic we've had in this world in 100 years. It's a medical issue to be addressed by doctors and not a political issue. Today, my colleagues are asking us to support a bill to terminate the COVID public health emergency. Yet the Biden administration's current extension of the public health emergency is a rational one. It's rational in a way we exit from this emergency declaration. We let our healthcare system adjust from this tremendous, terribly, terrible pandemic that continues to evolve in our society. I would say a politically driven end to COVID-19 is not the way to run our healthcare system. Furthermore, while my colleagues are saying that there's need for, no need for a public health emergency, they want to keep Title 42 at the border because of its public health emergency implications. My colleagues, I would say to you, if you truly believe the pandemic is over, then you can't say that Title 42 is still needed at the border because of healthcare crisis. Mr. Speaker, I yield. Congressman Lou Correa, Democrat from California. Before that, Congressman Larry Bouchon, Republican from Indiana, on the House floor. What would an end to the COVID-19 emergency declarations mean for some of the emergency policies that have been in place for three years? Joining us now on the phone to talk about that is Adam Kankren, Politico's White House correspondent. Thank you so much for being here. The the one that's gotten a lot of attention, immigration and Title 42. What happens to that? Yeah, that's one of the big questions. And thank you for having me. I mean, it's one of the big questions coming out of this uh, kind of sudden announcement last night. If you remember back, you know, when the Trump administration first put Title 42 into place, it was uh, justified by saying we were in the middle of the pandemic and this was a necessary health precaution. And what the Biden White House is now saying is when the health emergency is lifted, that could mean the end of Title 42. Uh, but there are a few wrinkles. One is there's an ongoing court case, obviously, over uh, Title 42 and the administration's previous attempts uh, to end it. And so there's kind of these parallel uh, routes here. And it's not quite clear 
you know, when when the Biden administration ends the public health emergencies, what exactly happens yet to Title 42? And for all the other policies that have been in place over the past couple of years, some have expired already. Which ones are still in effect that ending the emergency declaration would have them go away? There are a ton of flexibilities really across the government that have been in place for the last three years uh, as a result of this public health emergency. Um, The major ones, you know, is what we associate with COVID. So the ability to get tests for free, to get treatments for free, uh, to be able to get a vaccine for free, uh, no matter your insurance status, that's all tied to the public health emergency. There are other flexibilities, uh, telehealth, access to telehealth, and how that works with federal programs. If you remember back when uh, the pandemic first hit, nobody was going out, nobody was going to the doctor's office, and so something had to be done to make sure people could be seen. That is all tied up with the public health emergency. And there are greater flexibilities around uh, SNAP benefits, for example. Uh, Things that go across the government uh, focused on the Medicaid, Medicare programs, making sure that especially low-income people can get access to their benefits uh, that are also tied to the PHE. So it is a very complex unwinding. It's going to take a few months. And there has been a ton of work behind the scenes uh, by this administration to figure out how to make that all go smoothly. And what about student loan payments, uh, which have the federal loans, which have been on hold for a while? That's another one of the the, the big question marks. So if you remember, the, you know, one of the justifications for student loan forgiveness was because we were in a pandemic and people were having trouble paying their loans. And here was a step that the administration could take. And that has also kind of been caught up in legal disputes. And so in the, this Title 42 are some of the bigger issues that need to be sorted out, you know, both legally and policy-wise over the, over the coming months. We're talking with Adam Kankren with Politico. The White House making its announcement yesterday, one day before the House of Representatives under the new Republican majority taking up a bill to end the pandemic. What are they saying about any connection? Well, this was an announcement from the administration that was originally planned for next week around the State of the Union. The uh, White House, uh, according to our reporting, had already decided that they were going to end this on May 11th, but they wanted to make this part of you know next week and 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 uh, you know an announcement that the president could make. This got accelerated though when they realized that House Republicans were going to vote on these measures that would immediately end the public health emergencies, and that there was some concern that Democrats on the Hill would feel pressured to vote for it without any more clarity from the administration on, on what they plan to do. And so this was all kind of moved up quickly. Uh, a lot of work went into it over the weekend. And ultimately, the announcement came out. This now g- should give House Democrats, uh, Senate Democrats, cover to say, why would we vote for this Republican measure when we already know exactly when the public health emergency is going to end? And finally, we've been talking about the, the policies that are affected by the end of the declarations of emergencies. But what's the, the symbolism of it? Is the White House talking about that? Yeah, this is, this is a, a major part of this. So the public health emergency was really the one, indica- the first, one of the first indications early on back in 2020 that we were potentially in for some trouble here. You know, it was back in January, late January uh, 2020. And 
throughout the entire pandemic response, we have kind of this public health emergency has been renewed and renewed over and over again. And so symbolically, this is the end, you know, not of the pandemic officially and not of COVID most certainly, but to the administration and the message that they're trying to send is that this is the end of the emergency era. This is the end of uh, having to treat this as a front of mind issue. Um, the administration has argued that the, for the vast majority of Americans, we can live safely with COVID now. And it's just a matter of monitoring and trying to keep a lid on the virus as it currently circulates. Adam Kankrin is a White House correspondent with Politico. Find his stories at Politico.com and on Twitter, it's at Adam Kankrin. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Final vote in the House on the bill to end the COVID-19 health emergency declaration. 220 yes, 210 no. It passes. House today passing a second bill that would get rid of the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for Medicare and Medicaid providers. It's titled the Freedom for Healthcare Workers Act. Vote on that, 227 to 203. President Biden will be meeting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, on Wednesday to talk about the national debt limit. The U.S. has hit the current $31.4 trillion ceiling, and an increase in it would be necessary by June or perhaps July to avoid a default. House Republicans are requesting that federal spending reductions be that accompany that debt limit increase. White House making public a memo from the OMB director, Shalanda Young, and the National Economic Council director, Brian Deese, saying the president will ask the speaker if he will, one, commit to preventing a default, and two, will release a budget proposal with House Republican spending priorities. Those two writing that the president will release his budget proposal May 9th and, quote, it's essential that Speaker McCarthy likewise commit to releasing a budget so that the American people can see how Republicans plan to reduce the deficit, whether through Social Security cuts, cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Affordable Care Act health coverage and or cuts to research, education, and public safety, as well as how much their budget will add to the deficit with cuts for the wealthiest Americans and large corporations as their first bill this year. Speaker McCarthy tweeting today, Mr. President, I received your staff's memo. I'm not interested in political games. I'm coming to negotiate for the American people. The White House Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton asked by a reporter today about this upcoming meeting. McCarthy meeting on Wednesday. House Republicans say they want a path toward a balanced budget. Does the White House think a balanced budget is a good goal and something it should pursue for the economy? Look, let's start by talking, uh, let's look at what President Biden has done to reduce the deficit. The president has cut the deficit a record $1.7 trillion, the largest decline in American history. His Inflation Reduction Act reduces it by hundreds of billions more. Whereas the deficit increased every single year under Donald Trump, his four years in office are responsible for 25% of our total national debt from the last 230 years. And the first bill that House Republicans passed this year would add $114 billion extra to the deficit by helping billionaires cheat on their taxes. That's on top of the $2 trillion in Trump tax cuts favoring the wealthy that they propose extending. So when President Biden says he will work to reduce the deficit, he's not just said it, he's acted on it. And, you know, he wants to hear Republicans' plans to do the same. Is that a continued goal going forward for the president? 
The president said he's happy to talk with anyone with ideas to responsibly lower the deficit, and he's put forward several proposals to do so by making the rich and big corporations pay their fair share. But what's the Republican plan? Uh, is it to cut Social Security and Medicare? Is it to raise the retirement age? Uh, Speaker McCarthy claims he doesn't want to do what he has previously voted for in this regard. He should share what his plan is. Olivia Dalton is the White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary with reporters today on Air Force One. On Capitol Hill, the House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, asked by reporters to preview Wednesday's meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The, uh, the debt ceiling, uh, the president has said he's, he just announced he's going to release his budget March 9th. He said when is the Republican going to release their budget? What can you tell us about the House Republican budget? When's it coming? What's it going to look like? And what's your message heading into this meeting with uh, Biden? Obviously, there's timetables for releasing the budgets. The president's budget is due, I believe, prior to that date. Ours is due in April. So I hope the president meets his deadline, just like we're going to work to meet our deadline. At the same time, what you see coming up with the debt ceiling, uh, the debt ceiling is a symbol of Washington's spending problem because the debt ceiling is literally the nation's credit card. It's got a maximum. And if you hit that maximum, and look, families have these conversations all the time. Uh, If they're spending more money than they're taking in, meaning you maxed out your credit card, uh, President Biden said, just give me more money. He just wants to spend more money. Said he wouldn't even have a conversation with Speaker McCarthy. That's an untenable position. It's a recklessly irresponsible position for President Biden to take to say, just give him more money so he can keep spending money that we don't have. We have got to get control over spending in Washington. And what Speaker McCarthy said is we need to sit down and have a responsible adult conversation like families do. Because if a family maxes out the credit card, they're not just going to go get another credit card or ask the bank to raise the limit. You obviously pay your minimum payment. You're going to pay your your debts. But you're also going to have to have a responsible conversation about how we stop this from happening again. Is there no waste in the federal government that President Biden can agree to identify to save taxpayer money? And again, that's what Speaker McCarthy laid out. And hopefully they'll be able to start having that conversation. Uh, But I think when every family looks at their own budget, they look at the federal government and they see waste, billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in identified waste. We've identified hundreds of billions of dollars of payments, COVID-related items that are going to people that don't even have social security numbers, that don't even live in America. Prisoners in prison getting checks from taxpayers, and President Biden said he doesn't want to cut any waste. That's irresponsible. It's untenable. It's about time we confront this problem. The House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, at a House Republican news conference today in Washington. President Biden today in New York City to announce a nearly $300 million grant for a new railroad tunnel under the Hudson River. Politico writes that in 2009, officials did a ceremonial groundbreaking for the project before workers had to fill in where they started digging when New Jersey's then-Governor Chris Christie pulled its funding. The project was then revived after the tunnels incurred significant damage during Hurricane Sandy in 2012, only to be held up by the Trump administration referring to the larger program known as the Gateway Program. Here's President Biden in New York. If this line shuts down for just one day, it will cost the American economy $100 million a day in cost. The current Hudson River Rail Tunnel can be a major choke point, a critical link to New York Penn Station, the busiest train station in all of America. This tunnel opened for business in 1910. 113 years ago, 
and the structure is literally deteriorating. The roof is leaking, the floor is sinking. Plus, it was badly damaged by Superstorm Sandy. I was the vice president. I came and walked through this tunnel. You ought to see it. Today, over 10 years later, there's still remnants of seawater in the tunnel eating away at the concrete, the steel, and the electrical components within the tunnel. In 2020, there were over 12,000 minutes in delay in just one year. 12,000 minutes of delay. The United States of America, for God's sake, what are we doing? This is the United States of America. We know better. We're so much brighter than that. And now we're going to prove it. We're going to rebuild the existing tunnel, but we can't do that until we build a brand new, entirely second, an entirely different and separate tunnel. We can't fix the first one without building the new one. And that tunnel is going to, you're going to run at faster speeds with no interruptions, be running at 100 miles an hour, while the original tunnel is under construction. That will mean fewer delays, less risk and major, of major shutdowns. The new tunnel is going to have two tubes with one track in each tube so they can keep operating even if one side breaks down. But it's going to be safer, more resilient, more reliable, and the biggest rail, the biggest rail line in the United States of America. And to get it done is the first step for completing the concrete casing under the Hudson Yards that Chuck referenced, which Chuck has been talking and talking and talking and talking and talking about. Hudson Yard sits above where the new tunnel will connect to Penn Station. This is a critical step for everything else we're going to do in the Carter and rail period. As you may know, work started in Hudson Yards site in 2013, but stalled due to lack of funding. But thanks to the bi and I emphasize the bipartisan infrastructure law, we now have the money and we're finally going to get it done. When the project is complete, trains will be in and out of New York more quickly, more safely, and with fewer interruptions. President Biden today in New York City, joined by the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, and the U.S. Senators from New York and New Jersey. In New York, Kirsten Gillibrand and Chuck Schumer, the Majority Leader. And in New Jersey, Cory Booker and Bob Menendez, all four of those actually all six of those are Democrats. The New York Times reports that in recent days, Mr. Biden has been on an underground tour of sorts to make the case that his economic plans are not just a price tag, but also a way to improve people's lives. On Monday, he was in Baltimore highlighting an investment of more than $4 billion to improve an aging rail tunnel there. Later this week, he will be in Philadelphia to discuss lead pipe removal. This is all ahead of next week's State of the Union address scheduled for Tuesday. Wall Street today, the Dow up 368, Nasdaq up 190, S&P up 58. This from the Washington Post. Embattled Congressman George Santos, Republican from New York, told House Republicans on Tuesday that he will step down temporarily from his committee assignments amid multiple investigations into his campaign finances after he lied about key aspects of his biography. George Santos said in a closed-door meeting of House Republicans that he would remove himself from his assignments on the House Small Business Committee and the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. George Santos told the meeting that he will step down because he's a distraction, according to a Republican lawmaker who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the private meeting. And the Washington Post ending with this, the conversation comes one day after George Santos met with the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. 
Outside that closed meeting, the chair of the House Small Business Committee, Roger Williams, Republican from Texas, spoke with reporters. Mr. Santos has asked to be relieved from his committee uh-huh. assignments. The chairman believed that he was going to serve right. on. What are your, what's your reaction to that? Well, I just heard that in there. Yes. And uh, if that's what he wants to do, then that's what he wants to do. If he feels like it's a, uh, a sideshow of what we're trying to do. And I will tell you, the bulk of the questions I would get is not, not are we, what are we going to do on small business, how are we going to help Main Street, how are we going to cut regulations and taxes, et cetera. It was about him. And the problem is it's not about him. It's about our committee. So I think that he probably made the right decision, and uh, when, when he comes back, we'll have a spot for him. Do you believe he will be able to come back? Do you believe the allegations against him are serious? I haven't even looked at that. But if he comes back, we'll have If, if he wants to help us reduce regulations, help small business, and put people back to work again, he'll be on the committee. But you're, you're, you're glad that he's not part of it now, that he won't be a distraction. I'm going to say I'm glad. It's unfortunate, but it is what it is. That's what we say in Texas. I, I'm well aware, sir. I'll be there. there. See, I'll do the right thing at the right time. Where are you from? El Paso. Oh, El Paso. Yeah, that's Texas. Congressman Roger Williams, Republican from Texas, chair of the Small Business Committee with reporters outside that closed-door meeting of House Republican members. Later at a formal news conference with House Republican leaders, another reporter asking Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, the conference chair, about Congressman Santos. Given what we know now about George Santos fabricating major portions of his life, I'm wondering, Congresswoman Stefanik, you supported him during his campaign. Do you regret supporting him? Do you regret his uh, introducing him to donors and fundraising for him now that he's admitted to many of these lies? Sure. Like all of my colleagues, uh, particularly in New York State, uh, I supported George Santos as the nominee, and the people of his district voted to elect him. Now, we just uh, got out of conference, and George has voluntarily removed himself uh, from committees as he goes through this process, but ultimately, voters decide. And uh, I'm very proud that in New York State, we flipped five districts to help deliver us the majority, uh, and ultimately, voters make this decision about who they elect to Congress. Again, this process is going to play itself out. I've already commented on this numerous times, uh, and again, it's going to play itself out. But ultimately, voters are going to make that decision, whether it's in the primary election or in the general election. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Republican from New York, the House Republican Conference chair, part of a news conference today with other House Republican leaders. The House Democratic leadership holding their own news conference. Here is Pete Aguilar, uh, the caucus chair, and Ted Lieu, the vice chair, both from California getting a question about Congressman Santos. Can you talk about uh, Congressman Santos recusing himself from committees? I know you guys have had some things to say about him in the past. Any reaction to that? Well, I'm just struck by the, the chaos, confusion, um, dysfunction uh, of the Republican conference. They defended putting him on committees, and now they're announcing that he's not going to serve on a committee. So I just don't I don't understand what the, the play of the day is. Uh, we have said from the very beginning that George Santos is not fit to serve uh, on any committees. Um, uh, Republicans defended him initially as they, as they announced his committee appointments. Uh, so uh, I'm pleased that they agree with us now. I just don't know if we can trust them, if this is just the decision of the week or if this is the final decision. But clearly, uh, George Santos has some has some issues and concerns, and uh, this is likely the outcome of his meeting with, uh, with the Speaker. Um, but uh, it's unfortunate when Republicans are put in a position to defend uh, someone who uh, only has a, a passing uh, relationship with the truth, and um, uh, we'll see what uh, the message is related to Mr. Santos for next week. Ted, you want to? Sure. 
Uh, I also urge George Santos to listen to his Republican and Democratic constituents and also resign from Congress as well. Congressman Ted Lieu, Democrat from California, the vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus, and before that, Peter Aguilar, also from California, the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, at a news conference. Back to the Washington Post article about George Santos leaving his committees, he says temporarily. The article as this, the announcement comes the same day polling in his district showed the vast majority of voters believe he should resign. More than three-quarters of registered voters in New York's third congressional district said he should leave his job. The Newsday Siena College poll found George Santos has given no indication that he plans to voluntary, voluntarily give up his seat. Congressman George Santos did about a 10-minute interview with the OANN network. Here's about a minute of that prevailing opinion out there right now from your voters is that they have not heard a sincere apology from you yet. I, I've made my sincere apology multiple times. I, I earlier said it that I thoroughly apologize for lying about my education and embellishing the resume. I've made that very, very clear. Uh, I, I don't know what more can, can be said other than admitting. Is there anything more humbling, humiliating than admitting that on national television, Caitlin? So you say you're not angry. I'm not angry at all. You're not angry at what you claim is a agenda by the media trying to take you down. Anger is something I don't dwell in because anger brings you, yields you no, nothing positive. I'm probably always in an upbeat personality. I try to remain the same person. People know me to be high energy, energetic, upbeat, and I will remain that way because that's who I am. Now, angry, that's, uh, maybe you can say that I'm passionate about all of this, but anger is just not something you, I would think is appropriate to describe me. Congressman George Santos, Republican from New York, part of an interview with OANN. Washington Today continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S. House Oversight and Accountability Committee holding an organizational meeting today under the new Republican majority. The chair, James Comer of Kentucky, promising There'll be investigations that will include the overseas business dealings of Hunter Biden, son of President Joe Biden. Congressman Kwaizi Nfume, Democrat from Maryland, offering an amendment today to the committee rules package to require that subpoenas get a committee vote. I move to offer amendment number four to the rules of the Committee on Oversight and Accountability House Rule 11, Clause 2M, authorizes House committees and subcommittees to issue subpoenas for attendance of witnesses and the production of documents. This amendment will quite simply require a majority vote approval, 
by members of the committee prior to authorizing and issuing a subpoena in the conduct of any investigation or activity within the jurisdiction of this committee. Uh, I think we have a real opportunity today to execute strong bipartisan oversight. And this is a rule, quite frankly, that both Democrats and Republicans have supported in the past. And Mr. Chairman, I'm particularly uh, pleased that you supported this amendment the last time, and we hope today uh, that it will carry. I hope we embrace this sort of moment so that we can show, quite frankly, uh, the American people and members of Congress that we are still prepared in this committee uh, to unite, regardless of our different political beliefs. And so I would encourage uh, my colleagues from both sides of the aisle to the support the amendment. Uh, I thank you, sir, and I yield back any time I may have remaining. Congressman Kwaisa Infume, Democrat from Maryland, at today's House Oversight and Accountability Committee organizational meeting. Opposing the amendment, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia. I really appreciate the sentiments of bipartisanship. I, I think that's what's missing in Congress. But I would also like to remind the committee that after two years of a very heavy, controlled um, hand here in Congress and on committees where Republicans didn't have a voice, um, I in particular had no voice, having no committees being stripped of them by um, our former speaker and, and Democrats in Congress. I think it's also important to point out that as far as subpoenas are concerned and bringing up President Trump and how his family has been treated by Democrats, um, Eric Trump in particular has been subpoenaed over 400 times and has never broken a law. So I think, I think subpoena power is extremely important um, but I oppose this amendment because the Democrats have proven what they do with subpoena power, especially with the January 6th committee. And I think we can trust Republicans on this committee and our new chairman, uh, Jamie Comer, to do a great job with it. I yield back. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia. The House Oversight and Accountability Committee did defeat that amendment from Congressman Infume. It was a party line vote. Democrats voting yes, but the majority of Republicans voting no. The House Energy and Commerce Committee, under its new chair, Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State, Republican, held its organizing meeting today as well. The congresswoman mentioning the importance of the committee dating back to the early days of the country. For 227 years, the Energy and Commerce Committee has been at the forefront of the most important issues before us as a nation. It's the oldest committee in Congress. It was here at the beginning for the very first hopes and dreams in the promise of America, where we have lifted more people out of poverty and led the world in raising the standard of living through free markets and individual liberty. Millions of Americans are depending on us to tackle today's greatest challenges so they have the opportunity for a brighter future. Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the new chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, Republican from Washington State. The previous chair, now the ranking Democrat, Frank Pallone of New Jersey, gave an opening statement and pointed out the history being made today. I know you talked about the uh, historic nature of the committee and being the oldest continuous committee, which is certainly true. But what you didn't mention uh, is that during that entire time, we only had men as a chairman of the committee. And now we have a chairwoman. And that is a historic, <laughs> historic 
Congressman Frank Pallone, Democrat from New Jersey, now ranking member on the Energy and Commerce Committee at today's organizational meeting, which was followed by a an all-day first hearing on energy security. We covered it on C-SPAN. That video is also available at our website at cspan.org. The White House announcing that Vice President Kamala Harris will be traveling to Memphis, Tennessee on Wednesday for the funeral service for Tyree Nichols, the black man who three days after a traffic stop, died from his injuries. Five police officers have been fired. They are facing second-degree murder charges accused of beating him to death. White House also saying President Joe Biden will meet with members of the Congressional Black Caucus on Thursday to discuss police reform legislation. The White House Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton confirming that meeting today with reporters. As you heard from the president last week, he was outraged and deeply pained to see the video. He spoke with Mr. Nichols' mother and stepfather to express his condolences and commend the family's courage and strength. Tomorrow, White House officials will also travel to Memphis, Tennessee to attend the funeral for Mr. Nichols. When President Biden spoke with Mr. Nichols' family last week, he told them that he was going to be making the case to Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. To that end, President Biden spoke yesterday with Representative Horsford and plans to host a small group of Congressional Black Caucus members at the White House this Thursday to discuss police reform legislation and other shared priorities. President Biden is committed to doing everything in his power to adjust to ensure our criminal justice system lives up to the promise of fair and impartial justice, equal treatment and dignity for all. When Senate Republicans blocked the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act from reaching his desk last year, President Biden signed an executive order that mandated stricter use of force standards and accountability provisions for federal law enforcement, as well as measures to strengthen accountability at the state and local level. But as the president has said, executive action can't take the place of federal legislation, and we need Congress to come together and take action to ensure our justice system lives up to its name. The White House Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton making a statement with reporters on Air Force One. On that George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, the Hill.com reports that it passed the Democratic-led House in 2021, but did not have the votes to pass the Senate. The bill would create a national registry of police misconduct, ban racial profiling, and overhaul qualified immunity, which shields law enforcement from liability in civil lawsuits. One of the biggest sticking points between the two parties on police reform is the issue of qualified immunity. Democrats have insisted qualified immunity get the axe in reform legislation, but Republicans have dug in to defend it. That from the Hill.com. That doctrine of qualified immunity protecting state and local officials, including law enforcement officers, from individual liability unless the official violated a clearly established constitutional right. The lead negotiator on police reform in the Senate Republican side is Tim Scott of South Carolina. And on Monday night, he spoke on the Senate floor. I know that when a conservative Republican starts talking about policing in America, some people seem to just turn the channel. That's wrong. When I came to the floor and talked about my many unnecessary incidents with the police, I came to the floor and talked about the man Walter Scott shot in my city. When I came to this floor on June the 17th, talked about the massacre of Mother Emanuel Church 
in my hometown. I take the issue of policing in America seriously. I want our body to see it not as an issue of Republicans versus Democrats, but as good people standing in the gap, elected to do a job that we all ran to do. Let's do our jobs. We can make a difference in this nation. Had the duty to intervene been law of the land on the federal level, it could have made a difference in Memphis, Tennessee, in Wisconsin. More de-escalation training could make a difference. I hope that when the dust settles and the issue is no longer on the front pages of our newspapers, no longer streaming across our TVs and our iPads and our computers, that we do something that says to the American people, we see your pain. Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, on the Senate floor Monday night. This from BBC News. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has criticized Israeli settlement activity in the occupied West Bank as an obstacle to peace. The comments came following talks with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, city of Ramallah, on Tuesday. It underlines U.S. opposition to a key platform of Israel's new government, which aims to strengthen settlements. Mr. Blinken's visit comes in the wake of spiraling tensions after a spate of deadly attacks and a military raid. That from BBC News. Secretary Blinken also meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday. And today, after that meeting in the West Bank, coming back to Jerusalem, holding a news conference and taking reporters' questions about the two meetings, the two leaders, and how to reduce the violence. We'll start with Tracy Wilkinson of the LA Times. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you for taking this time, because I you have had a couple of very busy days. We can all bear witness. Um, you, just, you just mentioned the uh, deep concern over the trajectory that, that you, you saw here. And in your meetings, both with Israeli officials and people and Palestinian officials and people, um, I wanted to dig a little deeper into that. Do you concur um, with or at least understand Israelis who fear that um, some of, the new, some of the actions of their new government uh, threaten democracy here. And after meeting with, Netanyahu, with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, do you believe that he uh, can and wants to preserve democracy? And on the Palestinian side, um, Palestinians are increasingly disillusioned with the two-state solution. Many have given up on it, convinced that, that Israel will, will never let it happen. Um, yet you continue to advocate it, as you just did a minute ago. After meeting with um, President Abbas, um, do you think he is the person to resolve the statehood issue, to um, defuse the tensions, and to fight terrorism? In other words, do you have confidence in him and in the Palestinian Authority? Thank you. Thanks. Um, let me take the second part of the, uh, the question first and then come to the, uh, the first part. Look, as always, um, we're focused on the policies that governments, administrations pursue, not, uh, not individual uh, personalities. Um, and so we're focused on 
um, what the Palestinian Authority is doing, both to um, work to improve the lives of the, the Palestinian people, as well as to engage responsibly um, with, uh, with Israel um, on, first and foremost, diffusing the current situation, the current cycle of violence, reducing tensions, not escalating them, um, calming things down, not ramping things up. That is the, um, the immediate focus. And heard both from Palestinians, including President Abbas, as well as from Israelis, some ideas for how, that, uh, how we can move that forward, which is why I asked some of my colleagues to, uh, to stay behind to support the efforts that are being made to, uh, to calm things down. Um, that's really the first order of business. And my hope is that if that succeeds, then we can look to both sides to take some positive steps to try to rebuild uh, confidence, rebuild trust, and that in turn lays the foundation for, at some point, um, pursuing two states. But I think in this moment, the most immediate challenge is, as I said, diffusing the, uh, the cycle of violence that has people here first and foremost, but around the region uh, deeply, uh, deeply concerned. Uh, as I said, the President, uh, President Biden remains committed to and convinced of the importance of a two-state solution, but one step at a time, we have to focus first on making sure that uh, Israelis and Palestinians diffuse the current situation and then uh, start to build some positive steps into their, into their relationship. Um, with regard to the first, uh, first part of the question, and I think you heard me address this um, uh, yesterday, uh, the relationship that we have with Israel is based fundamentally on shared interests and shared values, and it's been that way for 75 years. Um, I spoke about some of those values yesterday, uh, including, of course, respect for human rights, equal justice under the law, uh, equal rights for all, the rule of law, free press, a robust civil society. And as I mentioned, I had an opportunity to engage with uh, um, some representatives of civil society just today. And to be sure, Israel has a very robust uh, civil society. And we've seen that in recent days. And again, I saw that uh, today in my, own, uh, in my own meetings. With regard to the proposed reforms, there's clearly uh, a very vibrant debate that's going on, uh, a discussion that's going on uh, in Israel. And these debates are a very healthy part of a vibrant democracy. In fact, they're unique to democracies. Um, and as democracies, one of the things that we recognize is that building consensus on new proposals is the best way uh, to make sure that not only are they embraced, but that they actually endure. Um, all of this, uh, of course, is for Israelis themselves uh, to work out, but we look forward, generally speaking, to working with Israel to advance the interests and values that have been at the heart of this relationship, as I said, for, for 75 years. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a news conference in Jerusalem. He will next be traveling to China this coming Sunday and Monday, the first visit to China by U.S. Secretary of State since 2018. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories that Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. You can subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.